The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to the Money Answer Show with host Jordan Goodman. Whether you are starting out, deep into your retirement, or somewhere in between, the Money Answer Show has the know-how to help you. Now here's your host, Jordan Goodman. Welcome to the Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Carmen Wong Ulrich. Uh, She is a financial advice columnist and personal finance expert. Uh, for many TV and radio shows. Welcome to the show, Carmen. Thanks, Jordan. Thanks for having me. Great to have you. Before, just tell them a little bit of your background uh, before we get into all these different areas of personal finance. Just tell them a little bit about some of the things you've done. Uh, sure, sure. I've been covering personal finance for about 15 years, um, starting off over at Money Magazine. And by the time I left there, I was, in, I was an editor at Money Magazine. I went into the TV business. Um, I had a show, a daily personal finance show on CNBC called On the Money. Um, and I, I'm a contributor uh, for CBS uh, Early Show. And as well as I have uh, advice columns in women's magazines. Um, in the past, Latina, Glamour. Now you can find me in Good Housekeeping Magazine. And um, I just, I'm looking, working on the third book, actually. Uh, my first book was Generation Debt, and the second is The Real Cost of Living. Very good. We're going to get into all these in some detail here. Uh, do you have a website people can find out more about you or a blog? Sure, sure. You can just find out more about me and, and get in touch with me at um, therealcostof.com or, and as well my name, carmenwongulrich.com. Very good. Before we get into some of the details, why don't you just give us your sense of the overall state of personal finance and personal finance education in the country? Are, are people doing better or worse, or what's your sense of where things stand right now? Well, I have to say, you know, having been in the business at a time when few people knew what a HELOC was or that it even existed, um, and now to this day, you know, really being amazed at the breadth of knowledge that folks have. However, it's kind of like information overload. What I'm seeing is that though folks may be able to define certain things, they may not know necessarily how they work or how they should use them. So in a way, it's like more people got more access to tools but without the right instruction manuals or without the right instruction. So, you know, as I've seen things change, and, of course, you have so much access to information, you can just Google things, you can go online. Things have changed in that way, but I think it's more important than ever for folks to really understand how everything works together and how it should work together in their lives. Let's start with, uh, you mentioned HELOCs. Let's start with the home, which is clearly uh, one of the main uh, drivers of the economy, either positively or negatively. Uh, so many people got into mortgages uh, bigger than they could afford, assuming their homes are going to rise in value. Then the homes fell in value. We've had all these foreclosures. What do you uh, recommend to people who are taking on more mortgages than they can really afford, and they're now, in many cases, stuck? They can't even sell their homes. Yeah, unfortunately, this seems to continue. It's now been uh, four years since we've seen the housing market fall, and we've seen so many people lose values in their homes. I mean, you know, shoot, I lost felt a lot of value in my home. Um, but, you know, that home equity, you know, kind of like a stock, it's almost, it's a phantom thing until you have to sell. So, you know, traditionally, 
before um, the 2000s and the 90s, you know, a home was expected to return maybe 3 to 5% over the long term. Um, and then we fell into this place where it was very much this let's get rich quick, um, let's flip houses, let's buy more homes because mortgage lenders weren't requiring, for example, you know, proof of income. Um, so what we see now, of course, is a lot of people stuck in the situation. I really recommend just getting as much help as you possibly can, even if you are making the mortgage payments on time, which I'm hearing much more from people who are tempted really to walk away because they feel like, you know what, they've lost 40% of their home value, they're underwater, they're not going to be able um, to to see any return on the home, maybe even in 20 years. So they're saying, why should I continue? Where is the help for me? Um, and there are some, some plans, of course, that have come through, but it's really up to you to take the reins, talk to your lenders, um, go to HUD.gov, uh, and see what programs, if any, you fall under that can help you. What do you think about the expanded HUD program, which is the Home Affordable Refinance Program? Right. Which, which is going to now be unlimitedly uh, underwater. They'll, they'll be able to refinance. Do you think that's a good idea for people to do? Well, here's the thing. You know, there did need to be some help for those folks. And actually, unfortunately, my, you know, my brother found himself in that situation. He's, he's kind of like, okay, I can pay on time and I can pay, but where's the help for me? Because I just don't see the end to being underwater. Um, so I think there has to be some change. I think um, a lot of the ideas being batted around in terms of how to solve this problem, you know, having, you know, should these mortgages be written down, should, um, you know, they be reduced so that folks aren't underwater and instead what they owe is the current value of their home. There's a lot of this being talked about as to, you know, what are the barriers? What, what's preventing that from being able to happen? A lot of that, of course, are, are the banks, even though the foreclosures certainly don't make them any money. Um, there's so many different layers in terms of the fees to the mortgage handlers and to the lenders and, you know, splitting and packaging mortgages. So things have gotten so complicated that I'm not sure there needs to be a bigger and better solution than HARP. So we're going to have to see what happens. And I recommend to folks who are in the situation to really stay on it. And the other program is the HAMP program, the modification program. Mm -hmm. When is it appropriate for people to try to get a mortgage modification? And what is the best way to do so if they think they're appropriate for it? Listen, you need to apply, of course, um, through the website, through HUD.gov. And you need to also not just get those folks to help you out, but also, you know, try to work with a nonprofit credit counselor to also help you. Um, if you have access to legal counsel that, say, helps you buy your home, you know, getting more people on your team to help you through the process is, is a great thing. And I recommend this, frankly, for, for people who find themselves underwater and seeing no end in sight. You know, even though you can pay the mortgage, let's say you haven't been laid off yet, but you can't sell the house, you're, you know, let's say 20% or whatever percentage you are underwater, if you can get help from these programs, do so. Because for a lot of folks, too, they are only one or two paychecks away from, you know, not being able to make that mortgage payment. Indeed. It, when people are in the position where in the past, they would have almost automatically bought a home. Uh, in many cases, they're choosing to rent. What are right. the equation of rent versus buy in today's market? Yeah, I mean, that's the thing, isn't it? I think part of it is the equation, but I think a bigger part of it is assessing your own personal situation. I mean, the thing, the, the key here now is to understand that the old um, adage of saying, well, let, 
keep the home for three years and you'll be fine. That doesn't stick anymore. Um, if you really want to get any return or make sure that you're not going to be underwater and you're going to be able to sell at some point, you really need to stay put in that home five years, maybe even seven or longer. Are you in a position to do that? You know, or do you have enough of a cash cushion should you lose your job that you'll be able to make that mortgage payment? I think there's a lot more prep work that gets that's involved these days in buying a home than, say, 10 years ago. A ton more, absolutely, because the job market continues to not be such a great place, and this could continue for the next, you know, three to five years. So you want to make sure that you're in a great position to buy just as much as the situation in your neighborhood, because it is very localized. Are the rents higher? Are, is buying cheaper? Because, for example, in New York City, where I am, in a lot of neighborhoods, it's more expensive to rent. It's actually cheaper to buy. But does it make sense for you? Can you stay put for as long as it's going to take that you can at least eke out some returns should you have to sell? As far as HELOCs, you have a, a section on that on the real cost of living. A lot of people took out HELOCs and spent the money, had a great time, and now they're burdened with that. What, what advice do you give to people who are thinking of taking out HELOCs uh, in the current market? Oh, gosh. Well, the question is, will you be able to take a HELOC out? <laughs> Lenders have gotten very tight. Um, it is kind of almost they've gone the opposite end of the spectrum as what they used to. They used to let you borrow up to 90% or even more of your home value. Now you're lucky. You know, you may be able to get a HELOC if you have 25% equity at least. So if you own at least 25% of the value of your home. So your mortgage that you currently have outstanding has to be pretty small in order for you to get a HELOC. Now, my question to you is why, do you, why are you getting a HELOC? Why do you need it? For example, I just met a couple who have a tremendous amount of credit card debt, but they're house rich cash poor, um, and they own a couple of properties, they have a tremendous amount of equity, it would cost them very, very little to take that HELOC out as opposed to paying 20% interest rate on five figures of credit card debt. Sometimes it makes sense, but again, you've got to really be careful about why you're taking that money out. If you're going to tie it to your house, if you can't make the payments and the payments on your home are bigger, your house is on the line. When it comes to your credit card debt, that's not the case. So just be very careful about why you're taking out the HELOC and why you're tying, for example, something like credit card debt into your home. And if you're looking to make improvements, that could be a good idea. Improvements on your home, it could be a good idea. Do you think that the value of homes is going to start rising uh, or as a long-term investment? I mean, people have always said that's the place to build long-term equity. Uh, is that dream dead? Are we going to have a long-term housing decline? Oh, I don't think the dream is, is dead so much as it's back to being sombulent. It's going to be very sleepy, um, just like it used to, to be before the 90s. Uh, you know, listen, let's change our expectations that the housing market, if you're a buyer and you're just buying and staying in your home, is going to go up maybe 3 to 5% on average over 20 years. So I think it's about changing your expectations as to what role the home as an investment for you should take. And then don't forget, too, about the, what other value you get out of your home. And I mentioned this in the book about, you know, non-financial value that you get from things that you put your money into, like your home. Um, you live there. It brings you into a community, into a neighborhood. Your kids have access to a certain school. So there's a lot more value to it than that return. But I think in terms of the housing market right now, with so many more foreclosures on the line, um, you know, will your market go up in your community? That depends. But I would say in general, the housing market, I don't think, will go up at least for another couple of years. Are you concerned there may be a change in the tax law that would take away or at least limit the mortgage interest deduction that would hurt housing even further? 
Possibly. And isn't that, that's, that is an interesting discussion, of course, with the election. You know, folks are, are thinking about that because that's been put out there as something that could, you know, lower the deficit. I think it's a tad of a drop in the bucket. However, could this tax law be simplified and could that um, be part of how it's simplified, meaning taking away that deduction? That, that's possible. Um, as to who enjoys that deduction, the argument is that it's folks who could afford to go without it. Um, but in a lot of cases, of course, you know, maybe you and I take advantage of that. So it's not necessarily something I'd like to see go away, um, but it's, it's a possibility. I've always said that the mortgage deduction, though, was a reverse Robin Hood tax because it distributes benefits from the renters and people who have small mortgages. Right. And the people who get the most benefit are the uh, people with big houses and big mortgages. So they get the biggest benefit out of the whole thing. So we'll have to see what happens on that. Yeah, well, 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 we'll have to see because, you know, you're right in the sense that is who's getting the benefit from that and, and who is going to end up paying for it. Um, and, and I would say that some folks who have much smaller houses, they do get quite a bit of benefit from that deduction because it's one of the few deductions they can take. Um, right. So it really depends. We'll have to see. Very good. Okay, we're going to take a break. Uh, this is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is Carmen Wong Ulrich, uh, who's a financial advice columnist on TV and radio and um, magazines all over the place. We're going to talk about all kinds of other areas of personal finance. We'll be back after this. Stocks, bonds, investment opportunities, financial news, and talk. We can help. Call us now toll-free, 866-472-5790, 866-472-5790, Voice America Business Network. We are in the midst of a global sovereign debt crisis that could lead to the ultimate risk for the world economy, the removal of the U.S. dollar as the world's reserve currency. What will this event really mean to the markets? And more importantly, what does it mean for you and your family? Listen to Global Currency Watch with your host, Stephen Ayer, to get a full and objective look at the world's sovereign debt crisis and help you prepare for when the crisis envelops the United States. Global Currency Watch airs live every Thursday at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Business. What would you do if you knew that you could not fail? The Dr. Pat Show with Dr. Pat Basile is a radio forum for some of the world's most influential people in the fields of health, wellness, and human potential. Dr. Pat brings together and introduces visionary scientists and futurists, environmentalists, educators, business leaders, inventors, filmmakers, authors, artists, mystics, and healers who inspire and support individual and collective growth and positive cultural shifts. This award-winning radio show empowers the listening community to be the change they want to see in the world. Tune in every Thursday at 8 a.m. Pacific for the Dr. Pat show with Dr. Pat Basile, radio to thrive by. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Carmen Wong Ulrich, uh, who is a financial advice columnist, personal finance expert on many magazines and TV shows. Welcome back to the show, Carmen. Thank you. Thanks, Jordan, for having me. We want to talk about credit cards here. Now, yield or the interest rates on credit cards have risen dramatically. We've got this new credit card law, which has gone into effect. Is your sense that things are getting better or worse as far as people's use of credit cards? Um, well, we know that 
the data showing that folks are starting to use credit cards again? We know that post-2008, we managed to cut um, our credit card balance down from it was nearing a trillion to around the 800 uh, million range. But, you know, here's the thing. Why are we starting to spend again? The only thing that concerns me is, is that we have this kind of frugal fatigue as it's called, um, that folks are just really, really tired of being frugal, and there's a lot of pent-up demand to spend, which is a little bit of an illness, I think, that we had for a while. Um, I think that, you know, you do have to be a very careful consumer when it comes to credit cards. I don't think, of course, that there are any, there's any uh, inherent evil or badness in them. It's a tool. You've got to know how to use the tool and use it to your advantage, let's say, for rewards and for points and for, you know, purchase protection as opposed to, you know, here's some money that I can borrow to get stuff that I can't afford. So you just have to be very, very savvy about it. And I'm hoping that folks have, have learned that lesson. In the last year, the credit card companies have increased their solicitations dramatically. It's well over a billion pieces of mail they sent out. And in many cases, offering really attractive teaser rates and 0% balance transfers and rewards points of all kinds of cash rebates. What should people do when they get these kind of things? Should they give into the siren song or, or just throw all the stuff away? Well, it depends on your situation, but, you know, you're right. We've seen a huge, and even I personally have seen a big influx of those balance transfer. Those checks are coming at you again, and I haven't seen those in a long time. So, yes, they are ramping things up. Um, I think it really depends. You know, when do you use those checks? When do you use a balance transfer? And I would say that you, you have to be incredibly careful about it. However, if you are carrying a balance that's something, you know, for most folks, an average of between 14.99 to, you know, 29.99 on a card and you actually qualify, because don't forget there are teaser rates, meaning they say 0% and you only qualify for 12%, but if you qualify for a much, much lower rate and you have the discipline to make sure that you pay it off within the time frame, it can make some sense to save interest. Um, I know back in the day when I was just out of college and I, w- I had a credit card balance, I flipped it from balance transfer to balance transfer with no fees until I paid it off. But I think that that's something for a really, really disciplined person when it comes to cards. Because what they want you to do, of course, is to get into more debt. Um, so you want to be very careful. And don't forget that those small rates, that 0% or 2.99, if you are late on payments, even with the Card Act, they have the right to change your interest rate after 45 days after they give you notice. So be very careful. What, how does that affect your credit record when you're uh, credit card surfing, balance, surfing your balance from one place to another? Well, that's the thing is that it, it, it can. Though these days, mostly the balance transfer offers are coming from cards you may already have or you may already have opened. So you're, in effect, basically just moving debt from one place to another. The danger comes when you have one card, let's say, with a $10,000 credit limit. You have another card with only a $7,000 credit limit, and you move a $5,000 balance from the bigger card to the smaller and then your debt utilization ratio, you know, how much debt you're actually using to what you have available on that card, starts to look really bad. It looks like you're maxing out that card. So that's the danger. Now, the, the question is, do you, what do you need more? Do you need that great credit score? Are you planning on moving, renting, taking out another loan? Or do you really need to save you know, 14% interest every month to get you out of debt? If you're staying put and you don't need the score, what you need more is the money and the savings, then it can make sense for you. What was happening to a lot of people when the credit card companies were lowering people's credit limits dramatically is without doing anything, they were making their credit scores go down yeah. because they were hitting their limits or going just above their limits. And so they were going from 30, 40% utilization up to 90 or 
hurting their credit scores without the consumers actually doing anything. And a lot of people got caught by that one. For sure. Yes, a lot. I know. I know personally a lot of folks who got caught in that one. It is very dangerous. That's that's also another danger, basically, of carrying a balance. So, if there's any, you know, listen, if you need any more impetus to get out of debt, that's another one. What have been the changes in some of the fees uh, that banks have been charging, not only on credit cards but other ATM fees and maintenance fees and so on since the uh, Credit Card Act has gone into effect and also the Dodd-Frank regulation? Right. Well, you know, we saw, um, you know, earlier uh, this year about how the big, some of the big banks had to pull back on putting on these $5 a month debit card fees. Listen, fees are going to be kind of the norm here when it comes to your checking account. Um, the banks are looking for ways to make money off of what the money that they have. They're not making any money off of your money. Because remember, back in the day when the Fed rate was higher, banks, you in effect took your money and were able to invest and earn money off of it. Now they just can't. And also with the CARD Act, as you mentioned, they're saying we have too many losses. We've got to find a way to make money. Don't forget that there's also these really small fees that add up. For example, you lose your debit card. How much is it going to cost you to replace it? Some places, 15 bucks. Um, you know, if you talk to a customer service rep over the phone, some banks will actually charge you for that. So you want to really get a good look of your agreement with the bank of where all the fees are. You want them to be transparent with you. And frankly, if you don't like it, and I know sometimes it can be very difficult because a lot of us do our banking online and we input all this information, but to move to another bank, it can make a lot of sense. There are a lot of options between credit unions and online banks with no fees. So, you know, really walk, walk with your money if you have to. There's been this whole so-called bank transfer movement where people yep. are taking their money out of big commercial banks into small community banks and credit unions. Do you think that makes sense for people to do that? I mean, some of them are doing it kind of out of political, making a political statement. But do you think that is a good move for a lot of people? Well, I think it, it depends on if it makes sense for you. I mean, I hear from folks who um, pay a tremendous amount of fees, monthly maintenance fees of $15, plus, you know, um, whether it's a, your account balance is below a certain amount, that's another $12. It doesn't make sense for folks who, of course, either live paycheck to paycheck or have very small cash savings and, you know, just pay bills out of a checking account to pay 20 30 bucks in fees every month. So no matter where your politics lie, it just may, may make complete financial sense to not hand over $300 a year when you don't have to. So look at your bank, look at your relationship with your bank, how, what your fees are, you know, what your bank does for you in terms of, let's say, online banking or automated payments. And if it makes sense for you to sit down one day and spend one hour inputting your data, moving your money to another bank, because if it can save you $300 a year, that's, that's real money. You talk about this being the land of point junkies. Uh, what do people do for getting rewards points and all that that they shouldn't be doing? I mean, if they're going too far, what, what is the over the edge on that uh, particular habit? Well, I think people over the edge are just, <laughs> I'm always amazed at folks. I mean, some folks are amazing when it comes to points in the sense that they use them the right way. So they accumulate points, whether they fly often, they have a business card that has points, they have a personal card that has points, and they have cash back, and they're able to monitor all this. You know, all this takes a lot of time, a lot of organization, and if that's something you can do, it may make sense. Where it doesn't make sense is when you're signing up for a program that actually charges you for that card and charges you a lot. So let's say they have an offer that says, we will give you, you know, double the points at these retailers if you sign up for this card. Well, if, you know, you're paying an annual fee of $400, it probably doesn't make sense. So part of it is matching your behavior and ability to be organized 
Do you fly a lot? Do you use the points a lot? Will you take advantage of everything being offered? And does that annual fee make sense to you? So that's something you got to keep in mind. If people get into trouble with credit card debt, too much credit card debt, the two big alternatives, uh, well, the three, would be uh, uh, nonprofit credit counseling, uh, debt settlement, and bankruptcy really are the three uh, options. Tell us briefly about the pros and cons of, of those three if you're in, over your head in credit card debt. Well, the thing, the thing with bankruptcy is, uh, you know, a lot of folks are very scared of it. Um, and I have seen uh, in many situations where it's actually turned people's lives around for the better, um, especially when it's tied to medical debt, when it's tied to divorce, um, when it's fraud, in situations where things really feel outside of your control. Um, that's what bankruptcy was really built for. And these are the folks that can really benefit um, from that. Where it's not beneficial, of course, is where you've gotten yourself in over your head because of behavior, because of bad behavior, um, because of assuming someone else is going to pay your bills, or you're living a lifestyle that's not in line with your income. So that's when it doesn't work for you. Um, I believe, you know, when it comes to debt settlement, for example, with credit cards, you want to be really careful in understanding that you can be taxed uh, on the difference between the settlement. So let's say you owe 15000 and you settle with a credit card company for five. The difference there, you can be taxed. You also want to be aware that when it comes, if you own property, if you have assets, you are less likely to be able to settle your credit card debt. Creditors mostly settle with folks who have no assets that they can sell to pay off the bill. So just keep that in mind. Um, but I really advise folks to first, before going to any of these scenarios, to go meet with a nonprofit credit counselor. And it's very important that it's nonprofit. That's not somebody that's in the business of making a lot of money off of you and the bad situation you're in. Um, so you can go to nfcc.org and find someone near you who can help you, you know, consolidate not just your credit card debt, but weigh in your student loan debt and give you some sort of plan for a very small fee. There's a lot of confusion over whether going to a nonprofit credit counseling helps or hurts your credit in the long run. What is your opinion on that? Oh, it doesn't do anything to your credit unless you do something that's going to affect your credit. For example, a nonprofit credit counselor is not going to um, take your debts and pay them for you or do anything to pay them for you. The danger are those companies who say, pay us this much a, um, this much a month and we will pay all of your bills for you. A lot of those companies, unfortunately, what they'll do is what they'll, they'll run disputes on everything in your credit report. So your credit score goes up automatically because what's being disputed gets pulled off your report. They'll take your money, and then they may not even pay your creditors. And you may end up even worse in a worse situation. So you always want to make sure to work with somebody that allows you to manage your debts and not do anything without your permission in terms of handling those debts. Um, but it's all about what you do, because just visiting a credit counselor and just getting advice, that does not go on your credit record. That's just between you and them. Many people are using debit cards these days instead of credit cards, although lately uh, a lot of the rewards are being taken away from debit cards. What are the pros and cons of using debit versus credit when you want to buy something? Yeah, I'm actually, um, there's one place where I say, please, please, please do not use your debit card, and that is shopping online. Um, here's the thing, you know, though debit cards do have some fraud protect protection, when you're shopping online, um, the odds of you possibly, especially, let's say, which you shouldn't be doing at a Starbucks or during an open Wi-Fi or anything like that, um, you know, the, the fraud chances are, of, are much higher. So try to use a credit card if you can be disciplined online. Um, also, buying anything big like electronics or, uh, you know, travel, you're taking a big vacation, use your credit card because of the purchase protection. By law, 
by law, you have purchase protection only on your credit card, which means if merchandise doesn't show up, if something is faulty, you buy it um, and it's fraudulent or it's faulty, um, you basically have the right to not have to pay for it. So keep that in mind. When you buy something with your debit card, however, that is not necessarily the case. It's up to whoever issues your debit card what their uh, protection is. It's not under law. So just be mindful of that. And I'm a big fan of, you know, I got my debit card skimmed um, when they first came out, and it was a very unpleasant experience because what they were doing was pulling small amounts out every week, hoping I wouldn't notice. It took <laughs> hours and hours sitting in the bank and paperwork and bounce checks to try to fix this thing. Listen, if you can instead use a card with discipline and pay it off in full every month, which is what I now do, you at least know it's not your cash money out of your bank that you're also drawing checks off of and making bill payments. So that can protect you too. But if you cannot be disciplined with a credit card, stick with a debit, stick with a prepaid, something else where you're not going to get in trouble. Very good. Okay, we're going to take a break. Uh, This is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is Carmen Wong Ulrich. Uh, she's a financial advice columnist for all kinds of magazines, TV, and radio shows. Um, and we're going to have lots more advice in the personal finance area after this. Up-to-date business and financial news. Call now and get the financial information you need. 866-472-5790. 866-472-5790. The experts are here. Voice America Business Network. If you are looking for creative ways to improve your bottom line, tune in to Make Your Move with Alan and Brian Bolio. Their proven track record of helping businesses enhance their profitability will provide the basis for a forum about actionable items based on a business person's perspective. The program will be business talk, but with an economic context, so you'll know how to stay ahead of the game. Make Your Move is broadcast live every Monday afternoon at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Entrepreneurial Insights is your weekly excursion into the world of business ownership. Presented by Sunbelt Business Brokers, the leading business brokerage and intermediary firm in the world, Entrepreneurial Insights will examine critical issues that impact both existing and prospective business owners. If you own or want to own a small business, listen for Entrepreneurial Insights with John Davies, Pino Boccinello, and Matt Ottaway. Fridays at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman. My guest this hour is Carmen Wong Ulrich. Uh, She's a financial advice columnist in many magazines and newspapers. Welcome back to the show, Carmen. Thanks. Thanks, Jordan. We'll talk about the uh, what you call the real cost of college a little bit. The, the tuitions are just going up astronomically, and uh, people are taking on huge amounts of student loans and coming out of school and not being able to pay the student loans. What kind of advice do you have for people saving for college in the first place and not getting over their head when they go to college? 
Yeah, I mean, uh, here's the thing. When it comes to saving for college for your kids, just do me a favor and make sure that you're on track for saving for your retirement as well. Um, I see so many parents, unfortunately, who really want to sock away money for college, but then at the detriment or um, to their retirement savings. Make sure you're on track for your retirement so that you don't have to say to your kids, guess what? I put all this money into you. I don't have enough for retirement. Can I move in? <laughs> Which is like not something that no kid wants to hear. Um, so make sure that you're all set with yourself. Also understand something. You know, listen, a big, a nice rule of thumb is, and this doesn't go for everybody, but it helps you to understand this. College costs are so huge that for most people, you should never assume that you're going to pay for 100% of it. At least a third of it you can borrow or your student can borrow. At least a third of it maybe you can save up, and maybe a third of it you can get with scholarships and grants and find a way to close those gaps. But please don't assume that you have to pay that full college bill because you better believe that I'm not putting away the full college. <laughs> I can imagine my daughter's five. By that time, it'll be half a million dollars. I'm not planning <laughs> on saving up that much money. What are some of the ways to lower the cost of college? Well, here's the thing. A couple of the ways, um, you know, first of all, in which I mentioned the book, and, and this is really so vital, I saw it in my own family in terms of who finished within four years. So really the biggest way to save on college is to actually finish, to actually get your degree within those four years. And you'd be surprised, but only about half of college students actually do that. If you can do it in less than four, bravo for you. You've probably just saved a lot more money. But most of the folks who go to school end up not finishing at all or taking up to six years, and that can really make your college costs astronomical. Another way is to really understand that college these days and in the future, this is not a rite of passage unless you're incredibly wealthy. This is not a rite like high school or like junior high. This is an investment, and you want to make a return on your investment. So I'm not saying make sure that you go and get that computer engineering degree um, from Caltech because that's the one that's going to pay you six figures when you graduate. I'm saying just be very mindful of what fields you're going into and how you're going to use it. What kind of jobs will you have access to, and how much of a go-getter are you? And I say to parents, kind of know that about your kids. What kind of child do you have? Is this someone who's going to really utilize this college degree? And maybe if not, maybe it's better if you scale things down and instead they go to a lower-cost local community college or at least definitely at least for a couple of years before transferring uh, to a four-year school. What kind of uh, loan deferment and forgiveness programs are out there after you've gotten out of college and have these huge debts? A lot, but only if you have federal loans. <laughs> That's the thing. Understand that private loans do not have the flexibility when it comes to repayment. You cannot defer them. You cannot put them into forbearance. Federal loans allow you to do that. They are the loans that you need to go after first. Um, you can go to finaid.org for a lot of free information on applying for federal loans. Of course, subsidized federal loans, what that word means is, is that while you're in school, the government pays your interest. If you need to defer because you uh, are not, have not found work yet or put it into forbearance, also they pay the interest. Unsubsidized, they don't pay the interest. But again, all federal loans have much lower interest rates and flexibility when it comes to repayment. Also, um, the uh, Obama administration administration put into effect the income-based repayment program. So this means that only a portion of your discretionary income will go to your monthly payment because some, for some folks, the payments are just too high. Now, if you work in the public sector, which is great, and some people don't realize they work in the public sector. Maybe you work for a public hospital or you're a teacher or any kind of public se sector job, 
you could be eligible for loan forgiveness. And that's something you really need to look into um, because it's amazing. I once had a nurse that I advised. She had no idea that she worked in a public hospital and that gave her access to student loan forgiveness. She owed $40,000. We erased $20,000 of debt in a month because it was forgiven. You also talk in your book about what you call the potential grad school gouge. What do you mean by that? Here's the thing. A lot of um, young folks go to graduate school because the jobs aren't there and they feel like this is just the thing to do. The danger is um, that, again, you're not doing this in a directed, investment-minded, what's my ROI, what's my return on investment here. You want to make sure that you are getting a graduate degree in a field that makes sense, in a field where it actually really will uh, enable you to land a better job, get a better job, get a promotion, that sort of thing. Be careful because a lot of graduate schools, they don't have, especially for master's programs or professional programs, they don't have the student aid or the financial aid that they do, let's say, if you're in a doctorate program where you can teach and go to school at the same time. So just be very, very aware of how much that costs you and know, you know, the law school and medical school. Sometimes you can get so far, so far underwater, uh, you know, six way into the six figures that you'll never get out. So just be very, very careful. Yeah, particularly today with a lot of law schools, I heard there were 43,000 people graduating from law schools every year. And something like 15 to 20% of them ending up getting law jobs. A lot of them just can't find jobs that are going to be close to uh, paying off what they're taking on in the law school debt. Exactly, um, exactly. But then I also know some great law school students who already have job offers. So it really depends on why you're doing it, what kind of person you are, and how you can utilize that degree. Yeah. I want to switch to insurance a little bit. And sure. uh, let's start with uh, life insurance. Uh, do you find most people have enough life insurance, too little, too much, and how, how should they figure out the right amount of life insurance, and should it be cash value or term uh, policies? You know, I, I, here's the thing. I, I notice that a lot of folks, when it comes to insurance, um, and once in a while I've been guilty of this myself, we tend to buy policies and then just let it sit um, and not review it when life changes and when the years go by. So you may have a policy, let's say you've been with an employer for over 10 years, and when you first got your, your life insurance policy or your disability, you, you know, had a lower-paying job, you weren't married, you didn't have kids, and you weren't living a certain lifestyle. Um, and then now you look at yourself this many years later and you barely have enough disability to, to take care of you, and you definitely don't have enough life insurance. So I think when it comes to insurance, you really have to pay attention and try to review your insurance policies every year when you do a financial, hopefully you're doing a financial review of yourself often, but at least once a year. Go in there and make sure that you have enough coverage. Also, too, in a shaky job market, I think for folks who definitely can afford it, it makes a lot of sense, and I know I do this, to keep your own personal, at least a term policy, a term life insurance policy. So should you lose your job or should you be in between jobs, you are covered. If you're a parent this is, and someone depends on you and your income, I think it's very important. And you'd be surprised it can be very inexpensive. Roughly, uh, what percentage of income or what times income should you have in term insurance compared to your salary? Um, that's the thing. It depends. I, I don't use the program, you know, in terms of a, let's say, a calculator too much because it really depends on a lot of other things in your financial life. For example, what other assets do you have? Do you have how much equity in the home or do you have real estate? Um, do you have any other savings or inheritance? Is there any other money that exists around? Because if it does, then you may not necessarily need to do, you know, 10 times your income or something like that. Um, really assess where you're at and should your income disappear? What would your loved ones need 
to maintain their current lifestyle. And that you can calculate month per month, you know, year per year, and calculate through how many years. And that will give you a much better idea and a very customized idea to how much you need. You mentioned briefly disability insurance. Uh, most people just take whatever they get at work. Is that usually not adequate? And should they get an additional disability policy? Well, the thing is, is with disability, if, 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 of course, you are an independent contractor, you work for yourself, you have a small business, absolutely look into some disability coverage. You know, maybe you can't afford uh, to exactly replicate how much money you're earning, but something that will keep your head above water. What I notice for folks who are full-time employees, especially if they've been with a company for a long time, is just like I mentioned with the other insurance, they, get, they sign up for disability and then never look at it again. And then they find themselves many years later, disabled, and, w- and their lifestyle way outpaces what the disability coverage they signed up for originally is. And, of course, once you have something, let's say, God forbid, you, have a, you develop cancer or some other you know, disease or you're hurt, then it's going to be incredibly difficult, if impossible, to get disability coverage. So you want to make sure that you do it when you're healthy and that every year, when you go through your benefits time, that you make sure you take a look and see if you have enough coverage. I would say about insurance, it's the thing you have to buy when you don't need it, because when you need it, you can't buy it anymore. You know? I, exactly. exactly. <laughs> Isn't that the case? Isn't that the truth? Exactly. Certainly with any of these things, yes. And let's just briefly touch on health insurance. Health insurance premiums have gone up dramatically lately uh, with the new Obamacare coming in. Uh, a lot of individuals and small businesses are just dropping it. They just can't afford these higher premiums. What do you recommend for people with health insurance in today's market? Well, health insurance, uh, I can tell you I'm a small business owner, so it's an incredibly expensive thing um, to deal with. I think that it's something, though, it's a cost that, you know, that we have limited control over, and it's a cost that's essential because what happens is, especially if you have children, um, make sure that they, at least they are covered, and a lot of states now have coverage programs, low-cost coverage programs for children, so look into that. But it's essential that you at least have catastrophic insurance. You don't want to completely destroy your financial life, which would mean your life in general, because you have to have a vis- couple visits to the emergency room or you need emergency surgery or something happens. So the factor in that cost, um, I remember just out of college, I had to get my own insurance. My insurance was this cost as much as my rent. And I ate a lot yeah. of Cheerios. But it was absolutely worthwhile because at the time I was having a lot of sinus problems. So it kept me out of credit card debt. It kept me out of a lot of medical debt. Um, so it really can protect you. I think it's important. It's a big expense. It's huge. I know people, folks hate to swallow it, but at least get catastrophic emergency room coverage. That'll save you so much and also save you peace of mind, tremendous peace of mind. Yeah, you're right. In bankruptcy and in debt, something like 50% of bankruptcies are because of medical debt. Yeah. People don't have health insurance, so it can oh, be a real, real problem. It's terrible. I've, I've just, I've known too many people that have had to go through this. I've, I've just, you know, and personally, and it's an incredibly painful thing to go through. So, you know, catastrophic insurance, which is is in it more inexpensive, it should you go to the emergency room, it covers those those things, which can get you, you know, six figures, million dollars uh, in debt. So make sure you at least have that. Before we go to break, just tell people again your website and how they can find uh, blogs and uh, follow what you do. Sure. It can go to therealcostof.com and also carmenwongulrich.com. Very good. Okay, we're going to take a break. Uh, This is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is Carmen Wong Ulrich, who's clearly a big personal finance expert. She's on TV and radio all over the place. We'll be back after this.
the market's up or down, or if you're looking to improve your portfolio, our experts are ready to talk to you. Call now, toll-free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. We've just come off of the Great Recession, but we're not out of the woods yet. What will our world be like when we get back on course? Will the course even be the same as it was? For the answers you need to weathering this recovery, tune in every weekend to Going for Broke, How the New Normal Can Work for You with your host, Eric Hovey. We'll clue you into businesses, individuals, and communities that are already making a difference and show you how you can do the same. Going for Broke airs live every Saturday at 9 a.m. Pacific, noon Eastern Time on Voice America Business. To perform at your maximum potential, you need to have all aspects of your life working properly. On Mind, Brain, and Body, Dr. Michael John Kell will bring you honest, open discussions concerning your physical, mental, and financial health. If you're ready to find purpose and meaning in your life, tune in to Mind, Brain, and Body every Friday at 8 a.m. Pacific. Mind, Brain, and Body on Voice America Health & Wellness. Radio dedicated to your health, wealth, wisdom, and purpose. The business community's first choice in Internet Talk Radio, Voice America Business Network. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Carmen Wong Ulrich. Uh, who's a financial advice columnist on TV and radio. Welcome back to the show, Carmen. Thanks, Jordan. Thanks for having me. You have a chapter called The Real Cost of Being Your Own Boss. Uh, What are some of the pros and cons of running your own business, and are people realistic about uh, getting into business when they do that on their own? Yeah, that's the key here is the best thing you can do is be very realistic. So part of that is know yourself, know your market, um, know your lifestyle and what you can deal with, um, and how hard of a worker you are. Because I can tell you one thing, that when you work for yourself, you work harder than you've ever worked for anybody. Um, which to someone like me, I'm, I'm a big fan of that. <laughs> I'm also a small business owner. But there are a lot of costs involved that you need to be aware of, of course. Um, everything from the fact that you may not get, you're not going to get paid every month the way you did with your employer. You're not going to be getting these biweekly paychecks. You'll probably be a project person or you'll be running a business and you'll have monthly overhead, that sort of thing. So, you know, when it comes to how can you sustain your life or what are you willing to do, what's your plan B? Keeping that plan B in your head at all times. Well, if this falls through, what would I do? Um, I recommend for folks, though, if they are currently with an employer and have dreams of being their own boss, you know, utilize the time and the paychecks you have with your employer. Make sure you, of course, do your job and concentrate on your job and collect those paychecks, but start working at nights and weekends and building your other business so that you at least have some kind of a cash cushion and then you can have some a segue. Um, also, keep in mind you're going to have to pay all your own benefits. That means life insurance, disability. Uh, it means health insurance and health coverage. That can be a very big cost for some folks. And taxes. You've got to pay your own taxes. What are some people's misperceptions or, I guess you might say, fantasies about how easy it is and you know, how uh, successful they're going to be when they go into their small business? <laughs> that they can go to the movies in the middle of a Wednesday afternoon. <laughs> <laughs> now, listen, maybe you could because you're doing so well. But the truth of the matter is, is that though you have flexibility and may be able to work in your pajamas, the downside is 
you're working in your pajamas. For some folks, that can only uh, the happiness about that only lasts a short period of time. Because don't forget, you're going to be separated maybe from people if you're working virtually. You need to have a system down where you get yourself dressed, you go out, you talk to people at the coffee shop, whatever it is that keeps you going and keeps you active in terms of uh, human interaction. Um, and also the idea that you're just going to get these jobs right away. There's always lag time. What kind of you know cash or what kind of situation do you have financially where you can keep your lifestyle while you're waiting for payments? Um, a lot of times, a lot of folks end up having to be their own accounting department, their own administrative department, and they have to chase down funds. Can you do that? Are you the type of person to do that? So I think a big part of you know being your own boss, as many as I'm a huge fan, of course, of, of all the benefits of it, is that you have to know yourself. And is that, are, do you have the type of personality for that lifestyle? Do you think that it's uh, realistic for people to be able to have an online business today? There's so much marketing about how you should do uh, your whole business online. Oh, I think that that's a business in and of itself. So, so somebody made up the business of, you know, making an online business, but there are plenty of different ways that you can make money, of course, online, but not through paying other people money to do it. For example, you know, it reminds me of those, uh, you know, back in the days of, you know, you can be a model or you can be an artist and send us this check and then we'll help you build your portfolio. No, 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 no. You need to build your own business, not pay someone else for the information to get your business because that in itself can become a racket. You need to, you know, explore your niche. What are you going to sell? How is it going to work? Is this about being a personality or a blogger or is this about um, linking up different businesses? What kind of idea do you have? I'd say that the number one thing you can do is you constantly research your market. Know your market. Don't sign up to a firm that's going to say, we can make you, you know, blank amount every month by working online. What is that? What is that business? Because that person had that idea and built that business. It's really about ideas and execution. And don't forget, listen, when you own your own business, there is very little downtime. You have control over your schedule, but that also means that uh, a certain other things in your life may suffer, like your social life. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about investing a little bit. Uh, you say that you're starting an investment management firm. What's that going to be, and how is it going to be different from all the other ones that are out there? Yep, yep. No, I'm um, co-founder and president of Alta Wealth Management in launching in January, and uh, we are a female-owned firm. It's myself, my two partners, Diana Contrina, and uh, who are CFPs, and we're a full-service shop, which means you know we look at your financial life holistically, um, and we have no minimums, um, just different ways. We're fee-based, so this isn't about you know selling you certain funds because we get paid to do so. This is about helping you manage and grow your money. And what makes us a lot different, um, besides the fact that we are a woman-run firm, is, which I think has its own advantages, um, is that we are all about the quality of your life. Um, what happens is we get a lot of folks who say, you know, I sit with my financial advisor, manager, I can't understand a word he's saying, and I feel stupid asking, like, what, what's a REIT? Why do I have one? What's going on? You know, with us, we speak, you know, your language, and we want you to have the life that you want. So our biggest and first question is, where do you want to be? What do you want to do? It's not how much you got in equities, how much you got in bonds, how much you got. That comes. But for us, what we really want to do is we really want to help you build your life because that's the reason why I did, got into personal finance. I have a master's in psychology. I realized that how you manage your money really influences how, what kind of quality of life you have. And it's a powerful, powerful thing. So to me, I'm, you know, we're all about making your life better. 
better, easier, and helping you get to where you're going to be and helping, helping make sure that that happens. Is there a website people can find out more about it? Yeah, Alta Wealth Management uh, will be up in January. You can take a look there. In the meantime, if you want to shoot me a note, you can do so at um, CarmenWongUlrich.com. Um, people have a lot of money today in CDs and money market funds and treasury bills and savings accounts literally earning zero. And it's going to be that way for quite a while with the Fed keeping rates down. What do you suggest for people as a place to invest where they're so scared of the volatile market where they can earn something instead of earning nothing? Yeah, I mean, here's the thing. The first question I'm going to ask is, what's the cash for? Is this part of your investment portfolio or is it an emergency fund? I see a lot of folks who get really fed up with the lack of return um, on your cash. But if that's your emergency fund and you're just earning, you know, 0.5%, good for you because what you're not going to be doing is paying a credit card bill at 20%. Your emergency fund exists to replace your income should it go away. So it's a small price. Earning a little bit is a small price to pay for not going into credit card debt, which is going to cost you a lot more. If it's part of your investment portfolio, I definitely advise you to really research and understand that trying to time the market, trying to pull yourself all out when you get scared and nervous, being reactive instead of proactive Over the long term, study after study shows you lose so much money. Assess where you're at, how many years you have to retirement, even if you're 65. And Jordan, you know this. If you're 65, you don't need all that money all at once, right? So what's in the market? How can you kind of tweak things a bit every year to get yourself into a safer situation? But, you know, really do the work at it and and, and research and educate yourself instead of watching the Dow and the S&P go up and down and then making these trades which, frankly, don't make any sense because you're not going to be able to chase them down. You need a strategy and a plan and a time frame. What are the pros and cons of doing individual securities, like individual stocks or bonds, uh, versus mutual funds or exchange-traded funds, ETFs? I am so not a fan of individual stock buying. I think that that's a lot of speculation. Um, if you want to do that, putting your money into a basket, I highly recommend folks do not put more than 3 to 5% of their savings or investing into one stock or individual stocks. Um, you know, here's the thing. I've seen and spoken to just too many people who've lost everything or tremendous amounts of money um, over the past 15 years because of investing in one company. And a lot of these folks did it because they had company stock offered in their 401k. If you're ready to get your paycheck from your employer, that's not diversification to also invest in your employer. So get the paycheck and invest in other places. I am a big fan of index funds. I'm a big fan of just of, of low-cost funds that have really good diversification. Um, and if you want to speculate, that's something that you really can do, but to protect yourself, do it with a very small portion of your money. You talk about inertia being one of the big factors in investing. How can people overcome inertia? Yes inertia. We sit down, stay put, and don't go anywhere. And we don't do anything because whether it's because you're afraid of doing something, you feel overwhelmed, you feel like there's just too much information, you have no idea. For most folks, I say, listen, go and get help. Talk to people. And with folks who have a 401k, you have your 401k administrator and benefits office. Since 2008, more and more companies have made it the policy to have this free advice available to you to at least let you know what your choices are. Explain to me, please, and say this to them. Explain to me, what does value mean? What does small cap mean? How does that, you know, what's the risk level in that? There are folks there that for free will be able to sit down and at least tell you that. 
and then do your own research on your own. And for a lot of folks, of course, you know, since this is my new business, I'm going to say it, but use a financial planner or advisor. Make sure you check them out. Make sure you get great referrals. And even if it's for a one-time sit-down to get a snapshot and a picture of, am I on the right track, it can make a lot of sense. In about a minute we have left, why don't you kind of summarize what a difference it can make in somebody's personal financial life if they take the advice we've given in this last hour as opposed to inertia and doing nothing? <laughs> Listen, I hope, I hope I've empowered you a bit, to utilize that word, um, to really look at your financial life because your life is, for a lot of part, uh, determined by how you manage your money. And I don't think that's a bad thing. I think that's a good thing because it is under your control. So hopefully you at least have the information now to take the initiative, to really look into where your money's at. What can you change in your budget and in your lifestyle? And ask yourself, where do you want to be? Do you want to stop living paycheck to paycheck? Uh, do you want to get out of credit card debt? And take those first steps. And if you can't do it right now, do it if you can daily. One little step forward every single day, whether it's learning more or cutting back, adjusting your lifestyle, or putting more money in your 401k, that is going to help you in the long run amazingly and give you many, many, many returns. Uh, just again, give them your uh, website and how to follow you one more time. Sure. You can get me at CarmenWongUlrich.com and TheRealCostOf.com, and then you can click there if you want to shoot me a note. Terrific. Well, we've covered an awful lot of ground uh, about credit cards and insurance and investing, all kinds of things. Thanks so much, Carmen, for being a, a guest on The Money Answer Show. Thank you, Jordan, so much for having me. And we'll be back with another edition of The Money Answer Show next week. Goodbye for now. Thank you for joining Jordan Goodman and The Money Answer Show. If you have a question for Jordan, please visit his website at www.moneyanswers.com. And be sure to tune in every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time right here on Voice America Business. See you next week. again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the voice america business channel for more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest please visit voiceamericabusiness.com the voice america talk radio network is the worldwide leader in live internet talk radio visit voiceamerica.com the views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the voice america talk radio network its staff and management